So today I would like to reflect on what this community has meant for my my own faith. So, you know, as Westerners, we, we tend to see faith as a very, um, through the lens of individualism, you know, no grandchildren in the kingdom of God, all that. Um, I've come to see faith as, as more communal with uh, personal and private elements. In John's gospel, the first disciples are called in pairs. So it's Philip and Nathaniel and Peter and Andrew. So from the very beginning, there's a company of followers. Even Jesus in John's gospel is paired with uh, John the Baptist in the opening chapter. So this, this communal um, aspect presents us with a dilemma when the institutions that are associated with our faith, um, when they are just having a hard time, like they're having a hard time right now, when they seem to be hijacked by forces antithetical to uh, faithfulness or certainly to the founder of what became Christianity. So it really messes with us. It messes with our heads. It's, it's like a heckler inside our head. Um, so we, we really need experiences. We need people and we need faith communities who, who quiet that heckler. I think a, a sociologist would call it a plot. We need a plausibility structure. We, we need the experiences, the people, the faith communities who help make a spiritual path plausible for us. So Blue Ocean has been that for me. But let me back up and and give some context. Um, you know, uh, it's I did not expect this, but approaching retirement has uncorked memories from early in my, my career. So my dr dreams have been populated with scenes from the 1970s and 1980s and the 1990s. It's like a, you know, the oldie station on Sirius there. Um, and this I realized is before most of you knew me or many of you were actually born. Uh, my earliest faith connection as a young adult, 18 year old occurred in Detroit as I was transitioning to Ann Arbor for school, this is 1970. Um, I can name the people from that period who made a big impression, uh, had, a, had a real role in establishing my early um, faith. Haskell Stone, Dick Bieber, Brian Martin, Deb Poyer, Barb Martin, Miss Ethel. These people and something called the Northwest Fellowship and Messiah Church were part of my early plausibility structure for faith. Uh, many decades later, only positive uh, memories I have, like like the time I went out with a guy named Matt in 1971 to share faith in the Eastern Michigan uh, Eastern Michigan University dormitories. So the person we were talking with in, in his dorm room said, "Ah, religion's not for me; it's a crutch." Uh, Matt's reply has struck stuck with me all the years. This year, he said, um, "I hear you, but for me, it's a hospital bed." And I, I liked how he owned his need. And this is long before Brene Brown's research on vulnerability. Actually, I met Matt. He came to church like last week. I hadn't seen him like in decades. It was pretty, it was pretty freaking awesome. Anyway, um, or I think of uh, uh, being in married student housing up at the University of Michigan. Um, um, part of my plausibility structure then was Joseph and Lily Arthungle and a quirky little house church before they even called them house churches. I was a college freshman and Joseph was a grad student in his 30s, I guess. Uh, he was from Kerala, India, the southernmost state in India. 
Um, at one point, he took me out door to door to invite people to his Bible study, and he liked to hold hands, which took some getting used to, but I realized, okay, I'll, I'll roll with it. So positive memories um, before Joseph moved uh, to Ohio a couple of years later, including some early memories of bemused wonder, like the very first home Bible study that Nancy and I went to in uh, would have been 1971 at Joseph and Lily's apartment, uh, just around the corner from where we live. They, um, they were from a Pentecostal sect called the Ceylon Pentecostal Mission, which had quite a puritanical side to it. Uh, the, like the full-time pastors lived with their spouses as brother and sister. That's what I mean by puritanical. But, but they also had like none of the showbiz glitz of American Pentecostalism. So, so you have to imagine like an Eastern contemplative Pentecostal vibe, which I know is almost impossible to picture. So Joseph, for example, observed the Sabbath as a day of prayer in his traditional Indian garb, like a Hindu sadhu. So as we came into their apartment for the first time, we're met by three other couples. Remember, we're just out of high school. We don't know any other married couples, but this is married student housing. So there's Joseph and Lily. Uh, there's a couple from the Philippines, along with an American couple fresh out of the 1950s. Uh, their last name were Lamps, I think. Nancy and I were by far the youngest, we were hippies, we were not socialized to any Christian scene like this. Uh, I had long hair and yes, beads. Nancy had short hair and wore Oshkosh overalls. And we brought our infant son to the meeting. Being a second wave feminist, when the child needed to be nursed, Nancy took care of business right there in the Bible study, impervious to the unspoken norms of the group or more likely simply unwilling to abide by them. So you have to understand um, a culturally conservative Christian practices were very much under the radar at that time. They, they didn't show up in movies or in Saturday Night Live skits. I mean, all the popular conception of Christianity was either Catholicism or mainline Protestantism. So I barely knew such ways of being Christian existed. Um, the singing begins. I'm like, oh, they're singing at a Bible study. Uh, Joseph and Joseph and Lily offer a song in Malayalam, their native tongue, which has, has strangely stayed with me all these years. Um, I'd sing it, but my daughter Grace is here and I don't want to make her too uncomfortable. Um, then the group bust out with, I'm living in hallelujah land. I'm living where everything is grand. Nancy and I gave each other the, we're not in Kansas anymore, look. Then the Bibles come out. The text for the evening of our first ever Bible study, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul advises head coverings for women because of the angels. This topic occupied the group for about 45 minutes. <laughs> 40 years later, I read a commentary by a Pentecostal scholar who, after a lengthy discussion of this verse, concludes, perhaps in humility, we should simply admit we have no idea uh, what Paul meant when he wrote that. So back home from our first ever Bible study, Nancy says, I had no idea what they were talking about, but I could feel the love. So our earliest experiences of faith community, quirky, but positive. 
Our next two faith community experiences lasted much longer with mixed results, as I have said before, as the Jesus movement of the early 70s morphed from a grassroots, very pluriform counterculture phenomenon, if anything left-leaning, uh, to something that gets absorbed into the surrounding structures, uh, one Catholic, the other evangelical. These communities had a contemporary feel compared to Joseph and Lily, but that can be misleading. When, when you're part of a newly forming spiritual movement with a lot of cultural energy swirling about, you don't know it at first. I mean, I, I didn't know there was such a thing as a Jesus movement before I was in it. You know even less where it's headed. You don't understand the forces that are shaping it. Uh, as I mentioned last time, the first of these phases lasted 17 years, followed by another that lasted 25 years and both had rough endings. So whether it's a marriage or a workplace or a faith community, rough endings can cast a, like a retrospective shadow over all that precedes it. It's like the opposite of all's well that ends well. Even very positive aspects of the experience are tainted in your memory. Uh, a difficult sorting is required. Uh, a, a rough ending may um, bring bring you into a period of disillusionment, which is not all bad. When our illusions are disillusions, it, it helps us embrace reality, which is the realm of divine operation. But a rough ending may also detour into a subtle bitterness that hardens like concrete, and it leaves us stuck. It, it's not the way you want to enter the next phase of your life if you can help it. So it's been such a blessing to me these last years as one of the pastors of Blue Ocean. I may be repeating it, um, but, I, uh, but I want to. <laughs> All my previous pastoral teams that I had been part of were dominated by men. And men surrounded by a religious patriarchy that always turns masculinity toxic. So in, in my case, um, the toxicity, toxicity was, it, it just seemed like riddled with rivalry and, and striving for position. And, and in this case, it was also like a purpose-driven visionary culture that breeds flat-out um, grandiosity. E even the softest, softest patriarchy distorts masculinity for men. It does. So serving with Emily, especially as co-pastor and with a pastoral team where for, I think for seven years, I was the only one with he, him pronouns. That was like my decompression chamber from decades of unhealthy masculine energy. So in my last eight years of work relationships and in my congregational experience, I've known a level of freedom from all that pressure and it was pressure I didn't know I was under until I wasn't. So just take the grandiosity part of that equation. You know, think of like decades of being at conferences or meetings or strategy sessions where someone is spouting big dreams of wide influence, everything at this inflated intensity and scale. It's like the room is filled with amphetamines and aerosol form. Uh, and there's a time and a place for thinking big. I, I happen to think our church is part of a meaningful new development on the faith landscape. But 
Why does everything have to be scaled up and then amped up? Whatever happened to Lord, my heart is not ambitious. I don't concern myself with things too marvelous for me. Like scale and amperage are not the only measures of value, of meaning, of beauty. At Blue Ocean, I was no longer part of a pastoral team or a surrounding structure that was acclimated to all that grandiosity. Um, you know, Emily had seen it before, uh, but, but she'd also seen through it. And it turns out there is plenty of value, there's plenty of meaning, there's plenty of beauty without all that, and a lot more reality. So I've come to see that grandiosity is a sad form of um, like gerrymandered artificial hope. Which brings me to another gift my faith has received from you these uh, past eight years. It's the gift of a preserved and nurtured hope. So this church has preserved a lifelong hope that was on the brink of being snuffed out. That a community of faith, as, as we say, built around shared stories and rituals that inspire us to pursue justice and live on our values. It, that's not a religious pipe dream, but it's something that exists. It's something that can be realized, at, at least approximated. This matters a lot to me because um, such a hope has been a, a focal point of like my entire adult life. I had uh, two simultaneously important influences that lit up my hope for communities of faith early on. So on the one hand, as an undergraduate living in an apartment with my spouse and then two kids, I'm having this like early honeymoon experience of a faith community before it's run off the rails. The Jesus movement before the political right created the religious right, which started in roughly the mid uh, to later 1970s. So at that time, in early 1970s, I get a work study job with the Community Mental Health Center in Ypsilanti. The community mental health at that time was in its optimistic heyday, its early years. The Mental Health Reform Act, I think, was the last bill signed by President Kennedy in October 1963. And the idea was to reform the problem of taking people with mental health issues and throwing them into state psychiatric hospitals, drugging them up and warehousing them. The idea was to return thousands to their home communities where community mental health centers were springing up with a twofold purpose. One, to care for the newly discharged patients in the community, but also to try to make the communities themselves places where mental health is better supported. It was like a social worker's dream, community mental health in those days. People were trying all sorts of innovative things. When I started there, I'm age 19 with my work study job that morphed into a regular job. They threw me into the deep water. After a short orientation, like I had a client uh, caseload, including people in pretty dire circumstances. I had supervision, of course, but I was right there on the front lines. By age 20, I'm staffing the suicide prevention hotline one or two nights a week from my apartment where calls would get patched in. They, they would never do that today. My faith community and my community mental health community felt like very separate worlds, but with an obvious common purpose to create a place of supportive connections at a time in history 
when the social fabric was fraying badly. I think the the research that um, came out on this in book form was called Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam. And it actually, the title comes from uh, an experience of someone at a, um, in a bowling league in Ypsilanti. So there was a lot going on about community in, in that particular part of the world, I guess. So in the early 70s, um, and this has changed a lot since then, there was a lot of suspicion and distance between mental health professionals on the one hand and religious communities and their leaders on the other. Freud, the father of psychiatry, had a conflicted relationship to religion and intended to cast it in a very negative frame. Religion returned the favor and was even more suspicious of psychiatry, and that, some of that still lingers. Uh, treatment options in that, in, those, in that era were severely limited compared to today. Th this was well before that social research uh, that demonstrates how for most people, being part of a church or synagogue or religious community had a demonstrable and significant benefit to their mental health. So I talked with my community uh, mental health boss at the time, Dr. Sheila Baylor, about this. And I'm saying, you know, people can get a lot of support in their church communities, sharing from my own experience. So I'm advocating for the Community Mental Health Center to pay attention to faith communities especially churches there in Ypsilanti. And most of them were kind of like from the South, pretty conservative, smaller churches, but to see them as potential allies. Uh, Dr. Baylor said, well, why don't you make a proposal? Which I did. Um, so I went around to a bunch of pretty conservative churches in Ypsilanti. Remember, I had friends who sing, I'm living in hallelujah land, <laughs> so I can speak the language. Um, to talk to the pastors about community mental health resources and how to access them. And maybe these two different groups could cooperate a little bit more. And I was generally warmly received by these pretty culturally conservative pastors, often from the South. So again, this is pre-religious right before the political radicalization of conservative Christians. Looking back, I think it was really a saving grace that my earliest experience of a faith community came when I was surrounded by social workers and workers in community mental health who I loved and respected. It helped me realize that if a faith community isn't a benefit for a person's mental health, there's probably something wrong. So this hope for the good a faith community can do has kept me going even after encountering different forms of of what now would be called religiously mediated harm that challenged or destabilized my hope and and was a challenge to my own mental health in different ways but you can easily imagine a scenario in which that lifelong hope might have been snuffed out at that time so Picture me nearly 63 in January of uh, 2015 and the impact in my life if that hope had been snuffed out. Like what I've hoped for is a pipe dream. Uh, I tried, but it's only ended up badly. That would have been a bummer on so many levels. But there you were, blue ocean. And by a kind of miracle, I'm thrust out from under the patriarchal religious systems that cannot but function uh, in an unhealthy way. And I'm paired with Emily Swan, who has been seasoned in ways that I have never been seasoned and I have incredible respect for. 
I'm I'm part of a pastoral team of talented people with a refreshing for me way of being in the world. I'm also newly married to an Episcopal priest who understands the challenges that female clergy face, like men assuming experience in certain areas of church life just because they're men, or men saying things to a female clergy they would never say to a male clergy. So, so I'm getting a real education. And of course, in January 2015, I didn't know who would show up, but the dearest people showed up. Uh, they showed up at our uh, organizational meetings, and it's obvious they have this hope too, and they want to make it work, and they volunteer, and they're, they, they're hoping against some of their own bad experiences, many of them worse than mine, and together we cause it to happen. Abraham uh, Heschel, who is a... Um, probably one of two preeminent Jewish scholars of the 20th century and a civil rights activist, uh, describes Judaism as a community of many different viewpoints, but a shared concern. And I could feel that at Blue Ocean, the shared concern for a faith community that is a boon to well-being, fostering for everybody, not just for certain groups. Um, fostering values and a vision of God that bears good fruit. And if a thing doesn't bear good fruit, that's enough evidence to leave it behind. Then, then we're hit with the global pandemic, which is hard on people and it's hard on churches. But we make it through the worst of it with this added dimension of our translocal members. And I had the best eight years of my long career as a pastor. All's well that ends well, and third time's a charm. Just to put this in a professional clergy colleague context, as part of my world not so visible to you, I've known so many clergy over the years who love their congregations, but also are vaguely disappointed in them. Actually, not as many as you think, but enough to notice. Um, they started out in a ministry with, with higher hopes than had have ever been even approximately realized. I can't relate to their disappointment. And, and I'm not making some ranking of blue ocean on a scale of churches. I'm bearing witness to my own experience only. And I hope you understand I'm not putting blue ocean on some pedestal. Um, length of days disabuses one of the tendency to put people or groups on pedestals. But I'm allowed my favorites like anyone else. This church is a treasure to me. I'm retiring with the best possible feeling one can hope for. And that's to have a lifelong hope intact. To everyone who has made this church possible, thank you. Um, drink when you're getting choked up and you can keep talking. I'm going to close with our text for today. When I first um, read the writings of the prophet Isaiah, it would have been during my community mental health days. So occasionally I was the only one staffing the Ypsilanti Mental Health Center. It was on Holmes Road uh, from 5 to 8 p.m. And it would be slow, and all you had to do was answer the telephone. Often it didn't ring much, and I'd 
I'd read my Bible. And around that time, I read the prophet Isaiah for the first time. And this part um, really moved me, uh, traditionally regarded as a reference to Israel and or to Israel's Messiah. I'm uh, using all my favorite phrases from different translations. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I place my spirit on him. He will render fair judgments for the nations. Remember, this is a, of a corporate something. He will not cry out or shout. He will not raise his voice in the streets. A crushed reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He will faithfully render fair judgments. He will not grow dim or be crushed before establishing justice on the earth. The coastlands will wait in anticipation for his decrees. It's pretty great when an ancient text reaches out from the deep past and inspires you at age 20. It's even better when that same text still reaches out from the deep past and inspires you at age 70 with more meaning this time. Um, the pleasure has been mine.